Welcome, and thank you for downloading Movement Christian Church's sermon podcast. Here at Movement, we are passionate about God's Word and helping each other move closer to God. Thank you for choosing to grow with us today. And now, here's our lead minister, Bobby Wallace. Um, We also want to wrap up today our series on Facing the Monsters. And last week, if you were here, you might have heard me, I quoted the notorious B.I.G. I I don't know if any of y'all know who that is. Biggie, he's got a lot of nicknames. Christopher Wallace was his given name. Um, That's why I said he's my cousin, I'm Wallace. But anyway, um, a couple of guys who will remain nameless challenged me, or, you know, I don't know, there was no talk about a bet, it was just a challenge to use uh, Snoop Dogg lyrics. I did not succeed in getting that done today. I didn't get that done today. But with the help of my son, Luke, I actually am going to use J. Cole. I'm stepping into the 21st century, y'all, in my hip-hop game, right? I'm using J. Cole lyrics. He's a North Carolina guy. Um, And so I didn't know that about him. I wasn't completely in the dark. But he's got a song that fits exactly with what we're talking about today. We're talking about the monster of pride. He's got a song entitled, Pride is the Devil. And here's what the first couple of lines say. Pride is the devil. Think it got a hold on me. Pride is the devil. It left so many R.I.P. Pride, I understand the sentiment. I don't think pride is the devil, but I think it is one of his greatest weapons. It is one of his greatest downfalls. I believe it is one of the things he puts in your path, in my path. Every single day is the opportunity, the, the temptation for pride. And, and some of us might be sitting there thinking, okay, well, I, I'm a, almost, I beat myself up all the time. I'm not prideful. One of the things that I learned, and I fell into that boat a lot, and I still struggle with it, where I want to beat myself up and I can be, I, I misunderstood what humility was and I thought it was humiliation. Humility is not humiliation. And so I would go to that far extreme where I would beat myself up every little thing that I did. I would think there's no way that God could love me. And some of you might fall in that boat. And so when you hear about pride, you think, well, this isn't for me and I can tune out. Maybe some of you watching a line on Facebook are thinking the same thing. And here's the thing. I began to learn as I studied God's word that even if you are humiliating yourself, even if you're beating yourself down and saying you're less than, that's really a form of pride itself as well. Because you're saying that I'm so bad that God can't love me and save me. And so you're still setting yourself up above God. And so what we have to understand is, like J. Cole said, is that pride is the devil in some ways. It it leaves so many people dead. R.I.P. Pride isn't the devil. But like I said, I agree with that sentiment. And it's a sin, it's a monster that affects paupers and it affects princes. It affects a a prince or a king named Saul from the Old Testament. Uh, King Saul had gone and he had split up just a few soldiers. They didn't have really much of an army at this point. And they gathered 3,000 men. 2,000 went with him and 1,000 went with his son Jonathan. And Jonathan went and attacked a Philistine garrison. That was one of their main armies. If you remember the story of David and Goliath, remember that guy? He was a Philistine. So they went and attacked a Philistine garrison. Jonathan, they, they routed the garrison there. And guess what that did? That made the Philistines angry. All they did was wake a sleeping giant, and they had an army. They had an army. So it says in uh, 1 Samuel 13, you can go and read that sometime if you want. We're just going to kind of give you a little overview. But 1 Samuel 13 is where the story comes from. But it says that they gathered their army, 36,000 soldiers, including cavalry, came out. 
they came out ready for war against what had been 3,000 total. That is an overwhelming amount of odds, isn't it? I mean, just time over time over time over time, 12 times over larger than the army of the Israelites that Saul and his son Jonathan had. And so they start to be terrified. They are shaking, quaking in their boots, and they were feeling a little bit prideful. They're thinking, oh, look what we did, you know. Is that Conor McGregor? They did that thing. You know, we look, we defeated this, these Philistine, this Philistine garrison, and they thought they were the stuff. And then these 36,000 troops come out there and they are terrified. The people are terrified. A lot of them want to run and flee and hide. And man, it's a mess. And it says in chapter uh, 13, verse 14, after what happens next, I'm going to go back and I'm going to tell you the story real quick. Before we get to this passage, Saul is waiting there, and he's waiting for Samuel the priest. He's waiting for the priest to get there to offer a sacrifice so they can go into battle because he wants God on their side. More than ever, he was aware that God was needing to be on their side. And so they waited. Samuel had said it had been seven days. They waited seven days, and there was no Samuel there. And so Saul sits there, and he says, All right, bring me the sacrifice. And he, a king, offers the sacrifice. Now, if you've read much of the Old Testament, you might already have the red flags going off. You might already see where this is going. What is the problem with King Saul offering the sacrifice to God? That was the job of a priest. It was the job of a priest. A a king was not to offer the sacrifice. And so he goes, he offers the sacrifice, and just as he's offering the sacrifice, guess who strolls into camp? Samuel comes in, the priest that he'd been waiting for. He was just a little bit late, but Saul took this opportunity. He was a terrified guy. He was scared. All of his people were threatening to leave, and they were shaking, quaking in their boots. They had this massive army, and he had the pride before. He had maybe a little bit of humility. I don't know. When he's sitting there, he's terrified, but then the pride comes back. He says, look, this is a good thing we need to do. We need to offer this sacrifice. We want God on our side. And so he presumes he has the pride, he has the arrogance to say, I'm going to offer this sacrifice. That was not his place. God did not want him to do that. God had a specific way he wanted things done. And he wanted the priest to offer the sacrifice. And so he had the audacity to say, I know that's what God says. I know that's what God says. But I'm going to do it this way because I think I understand what's best in this situation. Now, when you and I read this story in the Old Testament, it might be easy to say, look at that pitiful guy thinking that's silly, 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 silly. But how many of us have had something in our lives? We were faced with a decision, a crossroads. And we said, I know this is what God says, but in this situation, I think I know best. Our society is full of that, am I right? Uh, the, the church, Big C, worldwide is full of that, right? It, it's full of people who say, yeah, I know that's what God says. I know that's exactly what he says. He says, don't do this or do this. But in this situation, I think I'm going to rely on my good judgment. And it may even be a good thing. Like, so it's good to sacrifice to God under the old covenant. It was good. It's a good thing. But he was not the one to do it. And so what God says in verse 14, here, I'm, I know I was teasing you here. 
says, but now, this is what Samuel says to him, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And so Saul, from that early stage in his, his uh, kingship, loses his place of power. It doesn't happen right away, but he knows right then and there it's coming. That was, you know, a big strike against him. His pride got in the way. He thought, I know that's what God says, but I'm going to do it this way. I'm going to do it at this time. And the truth is this, pride makes us do things our way, not God's way. Saul wanted to do a good thing, right? He wasn't even doing a bad thing, but still his pride got in the way. He was trying to sacrifice to God. It wasn't his place. He was a king, not a priest. And pride will lead us to do things that we'd never do in our right minds. You know, um, we do a lot of things. We make a lot of choices that when we get in the wrong situation or the right situation and we do things because of our pride says, "I I know that's what God said, but I think right now is the right time to do this or this is the right thing to do. He was scared. He was afraid. He was he was insecure as the people fled and he chose to go beyond what God would allow him to do. But what I need to hear and you need to hear and Saul needed to hear is this. God is God and he has a plan and we are not God. And so even if you don't understand the timing, even if you don't understand the reasoning, even if you don't understand the why of why I should do this or why I should not do this according to God's word, understand this truth and it can save you a lot of heartache. God is God. I am not. And God has the perspective. Here, here, let's think about it this way. If you have children or you've been around children or you were a child, I think I got all the bases covered. We probably have a story or a memory of something in our minds when we saw a child or we were the child who wanted to do what we wanted to do the way we wanted to do it, just how we wanted to do it. I love those memes. I just saw a bunch of memes about toddlers and, you know, um, it showed somebody like throwing a fit and slinging something across the room. And they said, this is your toddler when you give them the wrong color plate. You know, I mean, they just, the kids lose their mind. And, you know, I talk about all the time because it's happened with all of my children. and, And most people can relate to this. When kids are around two, three, four years old, they want to play on the street. It does not fail. They want to play on the street. They've got a perfectly good sidewalk right here, but they want to play on the street. And so you tell them, no, you grab them back off the street. You know, especially if there's a car nearby, I mean, you're snatching them, right? And they get so offended, don't they? How dare you? You know, they do all that. How dare you? You peon is what they say to us. They don't know the word peon, but that's what they're saying to us. You small-minded imbecile is what your four-year-old or your three-year-old is saying to you when you snatch them back off the street. You don't even know what my kingdom is, my G.I. Joes. And, you know, they don't, I don't think G.I. Joes are a thing anymore. But anyway, you don't know what I'm dealing with. And we know. We've got the what? Perspective. We've got the knowledge. We've got the wisdom. We've got the experience. Do you think just maybe we can be the toddler when it comes to God? Trust that we are not so big that we are not bigger and wiser and smarter than God. You see, pride has always been around. It was there at the fall in the Garden of Eden. 
You can see it on Satan's part. You can see it on Eve's part. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 says this. Now the serpent, and we understand this to, you know, it's, it's a weird thing here, but, you know, we understand this evidently was Satan coming down in some kind of form. He was, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And just in case you don't know, in case you're not familiar with the creation account, you're not uh, familiar with Genesis, when he made the garden, he put Adam and Eve in the garden, and he only gave them one rule. He said, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he said, or you will die. Don't eat of that. That was the only rule. Can you imagine how many regulations are there about your car and your house? One rule. That's an amazing thing. And they still blew it. Guess what? We would have done that too. But anyway... He said, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He's twisting it a little bit, isn't he? God didn't say that. And so he's he's calling God's word into question. Verse 2, and the woman, Eve, said to the serpent, we may not eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. Or excuse me, we may eat. uh, Forgive me, I'm, I'm not being Satan. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. If you read the account before, what did she do wrong? She added something to it, didn't she? He said, Don't eat it, but she added what? Don't even touch it lest you die verse 4 but the serpent said to the woman you will not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it your eyes will be open and you will be like God knowing good and evil so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to uh, to be desired to make one wise she took of its fruit and ate and she gave also some to her husband who was with her and he ate Now, that's pretty interesting is that she still probably had a little bit of worry. She knew she took the first bite. She didn't die. But just in case, she gave some to her husband, too. (laughs) Isn't that real life? Come on. Don't be all acting all high and mighty. Y'all sure would have, too. (laughs) You'd have done the same thing. But here's the thing. The deceiver was prideful enough to try to deceive and hurt God's creation. He had that pride in him. Eve was prideful enough to want to be like who? God, because he said, oh, the reason God doesn't want you to eat that fruit is because he knows you'll be like him and he doesn't want any competition. And so called into question God's motives. First, he called into question God's word. She added to God's word. It's a mess. It's a recipe for disaster. Now, here's a a real quick little point. You and I need to study God's word and do our best to hold true to God's word and God's word alone. Don't add to it. Try our best not to take away from it. Look at the whole counsel of Scripture together when we're understanding any kind of teaching. Because even from almost day one, that's what leads people into confusion and farther away from God. Misunderstanding and misapplying and twisting and adding to or even taking away from God's word leads us down a path of heartache away from God. All right, back on the point here. That's what pride is. 
It's putting ourselves in the desire for the place for God. Pride is the idea that you know better, that you can do better, that you look better. Ultimately, what pride is, is putting ourselves in this place saying that we are our ruler, we are our own God, we are the master of our own domain. And it might not look like that when your pride first comes out, but ultimately, if you trace back to where it's coming from in your mind and your heart, that's what it is. Pride is often based on fear, as we said, when Saul got into that moment of fear when that big army comes up and it forced him to do something. It led him to do something prideful where he thought he could take a position that wasn't his. Pride is based on fear that you aren't really in control. And the truth is what? You're not in control. We, uh, where I used to live uh, a few years back, there's a highway. Not really that traveled much anymore, but Highway 17. It used to be the main thoroughfare up and down the East Coast, from Maine down to probably Florida, I guess. And there's a section, what you know, they call Business 17, that goes right through our little town. And it's a, a two-lane or four-lane highway, two lanes in both directions. And so the center lane, there's no median, there's no grass strip. It's just a double line in the middle. And I used to, every now and then it would hit me, is that literally I'm passing another car within like a foot or six inches sometimes because some people can't drive. I'm passing people doing 60 miles an hour like soup, soup, like this. All it takes is one and somebody's life is over. You and I are not in control. And when we realize that, it creates a place of fear and insecurity in us. And that's where our pride can really take root. It's born out of insecurity, even if it's buried deep down. And pride is often based on the fear that, like we said, we're not in control. And therefore, we double down and we declare, I'm going to work harder. I'm going to make sure I'm taking care of them. Make sure my family's taking care of them because I am going to control my life. We see the reality that we're not in control, but we're like, I've got to do something because I don't like not being in what? Control. I can do something. I'm going to be better. I'm going to be faster. I'm going to be stronger. I'm going to be smarter. Whatever it is, fill in the blank. Make sure that we get what we need or deserve. And pride is born out of that insecurity, even if it's buried deep down. For some of us, the insecurity is right there under a thin sheet of pride. And, you know, the insecurity just bubbles up and we know it. And we're just trying to cover it up with our pride. But for others, maybe, maybe you're 100% sure that person believes everything they say about themselves and every way that they carry themselves. But I will tell you this, if you dig down deep, if you drill down deep enough, that pride was born out of some fear, out of some insecurity. Maybe they were abandoned when they were a kid and they were like, I've determined I'm never going to let anybody make me hurt again. And so they buck themselves up you may not even know where your pride comes from but it comes from some insecurity somewhere way down deep pride is writing checks that you can't cash but unfortunately the bill will come due so what do we do about the pride monster that's the real question it's one thing to talk about the problem it's a whole other thing to figure out how we're going to beat this thing Because it's been around since, you know, the Garden of Eden. How are we going to beat this thing in our lives? Our knee-jerk reaction, especially if you've been around church for a little bit, our knee-jerk reaction is be humble, right? Well, I'm just going to be humble. How does that work? Because, I mean, let's think about this for a second. The moment you say, I'm humble. I'm humble. Yeah, I'm humble. 
Yeah, like 0.2 seconds, you become what? Prideful about your humility. And um, our 11-year-old Josiah, he, he's funny. He heard somebody say this as a joke one time, and he's adopted this as his go-to joke. You know, if anybody comments or compliments him on, you know, him playing sports or his art or anything like that, you know, even if they just say he's a nice boy, you know, he'll go, yeah, and I'm humble too. You know, he'll kind of give him that nod that way. And he's totally joking, you know, he's totally joking. But, you know, it's funny because that's what we're doing. When we say that we're humble, I'm more humble than you are. <laughs> you know, I mean, we might not say that word, those words out loud, but that's the thought that goes to our mind. So just being humble doesn't really get it done, does it? So what do we do? What do we do? It's easy to say we're humble, but it doesn't make you humble. Because the moment you say you're humble, you're actually prideful. So how do you destroy the monster? Well, there's two powerful weapons I want to talk about for just the next few minutes here to destroy the pride monster. The first weapon is this, the weapon of identity. The weapon of identity. Knowing who you are in Christ and knowing who you were outside of Christ is one of the keys to defeating the pride monster. Knowing who you are in Christ, and that means that you are a Christian. So if you're not a Christian, you need to get in Christ so that you can be in Christ, so your identity can, be, identity can be in Christ. But knowing who you are in Christ and knowing who you were outside of Christ, that is one of the keys. Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That phrase, poor in spirit, I believe, really is sort of alluding to that. Knowing who you are without Jesus is being poor in spirit. Realizing that you don't have anything to bring to the table, but thankfully God gave you a seat through Jesus at the table. And he lets you sit at the feast. You don't have to sit at the kids' table anymore. Any of y'all still sitting at the kids' table? You, know? you don't have to sit at the kids' table anymore. You get a main seat at the table. You get all the main food. You get it all because Jesus did it for you. And then on the opposite side of that coin, it's so important. Knowing your lostness without Jesus and your salvation in Jesus, it changes everything. And you might be think, sitting here thinking, wow, I'm glad I got out of bed for this. But we, we, we might know that, but it's hard for us to, to really know that. We might know the facts, we might be able to say that, but knowing who we are in Christ is a whole other thing, and it is a game changer. And I can almost guarantee if you see somebody who's severely, severely struggling in their walk with Jesus, it's because they've forgotten their identity or they never knew their identity in Jesus. You know, if, if somebody who's a faithful Christian is really, really struggling in a mighty way, you know, they've, they've gotten trapped in some sin and their guilt's piling up on them. And probably all they're thinking is there's no way God can love me anymore. There's no way God can forgive me. Um, there's no way I can go back to church. There's no way I can do this. There's no way I can do that because there's no way God can love me. And what we don't understand is that our identity in Christ is based on our faithfulness to Christ, not our perfection. It's not our, did we get it all right? He got it all right so that we could be in him. And so you remind yourself that you are in Christ. And as long as you come back and you cling to him, you repent. You come back, you cling to him, you repent. You come back, you cling to him. As long as you do that, you are in him and you are a child of God. But the other side of that coin can get tricky. And sometimes when we've heard that so much and we've owned that so much 
it's, it's just a pendulum swing. We come right back around and we start to think, yeah, I'm a child of God. Look at everything I've done. I know I'm a child of God. I serve all the time. When, when, I was a church, when I was a kid growing up in church, I went to a church that had perfect attendance pins they gave you if you were, had perfect attendance in Sunday school. And, you know, some people would come along, they'd open up their jacket, and they're like, perfect attendance, 74 years straight. I'm 137. <laughs> you, know, you know, I mean, they were, you know, proud of that thing. And, you know, when you got your first one, if you ever got it, you were proud. And, and we can say, look, look how I've been here all the time. All those other people, they are never around. I'm here. I am a child of God. But what has happened? Your identity in Christ has no longer been focused on the fact that Jesus did something that you couldn't do. It switched somehow to what? What you have done. And therefore, you deserve to be a child of God. But we can never reach that spot. So you've got to find that balance. And it's, it's hard to do. It's so difficult to do because it's easy to blur those lines. Either way, you think God can't love you. And then you think, well, God's got to love me. <laughs> I'm pretty spectacular. And it's hard to find that middle ground. But once you start to understand that, it changes everything. And so the second weapon is important too. The weapon of sacrifice. Now, sacrifice is a big term, and, you know, if you, if you hear, know about Jesus dying on the cross, that's hopefully maybe where your mind goes, sacrifice of Jesus, and we know that we can't really die on a cross, you know, I mean, there could be a time we're called to do that, I don't know, but it's not the same as when Jesus did it. He sacrificed his life so you and I could be a child of God. But what is sacrifice? Well, a big part of sacrifice is service. It's serving other people, whether it be in a formulated way. You know, we ask people and we want you to sign up to serve here at Movement Church in these walls and outside of these walls. But also how you just randomly serve people in your everyday life. Service is a big part of it. But here's something I want you to understand. Everybody awake? Make sure you elbow your neighbor really hard if they're asleep. Acts of service are a step or are steps on the journey they're not the destination. You hear that? Acts of service are steps on the journey. They're not the destination. It, it's very easy for, for me. It's very easy for all of us to say, well, I'm serving. I'm here. I've sacrificed. But that is not what it is. It's steps on the journey to get you closer and closer. The destination is being like Jesus. You see, because of what Jesus did, you're in Christ, but then you serve and you sacrifice so that you can become more like him in reality. That your thoughts will start to be more like the thoughts of Christ and your actions and your responses will start to be more like the thoughts and the responses and the actions of Christ. So you serve, so you sacrifice your time, your money, your energy, your talents, everything that you have, your, your pride, you sacrifice it all and lay it at the feet of Jesus. And I believe Paul ties it up really well here in Philippians chapter 3 verse 8 going through 11. He says, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Just before this, he just said, if you want to start saying who's good, I can give you a list of why I'm good. And he labeled off this long list. And then he says, but I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. He said, I, they're nothing, they're garbage, they're feces, they're waste, they're excrement, they are nothing. And that's what he said. I throw it all away, 
All my good stuff is nothing. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Identity. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness that God depends, uh, from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings. Share his sufferings. That word is a word we translate communion many times. Becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What Paul is saying is says, I am in Christ not because of anything I've done. I throw all my good things away because Jesus is enough and he's the only one. But I'm going to do everything I can to sacrifice everything that I am and every thought that I have and every amount of energy that I have. I'm going to sacrifice it all because I want to be like Jesus. And that's what we've got to do, church. We've got to seek to remember our identity that we can't earn and we don't deserve. But because of that, try to sacrifice everything that we are, everything that we have, so that we can be more like Jesus. I want to learn to give up everything. This is what Paul is saying. If I can know Jesus better, share in his sacrifice, even to the point of death, if I have to, to be with him and like him. That is our goal. These two weapons aren't a list to choose from. It's like, well, I like the identity part, but not so much the sacrifice. So I'm going to be an identity Christian. Nope. Because pride's going to come rushing in. Pride's going to come rushing in. You're going to think, look how, you know, I'm a child of God. And if you struggle with it for a while, you get to a point, you think, oh, I'm good. I, I deserve it. It's not a choice. These are two weapons that you have hand in hand if you want to defeat this this enemy of pride, this monster of pride. They're not a list to choose from. With identity alone, we become so wrapped up in who we are in Jesus that we forget that it's by grace. And with sacrifice alone, and believe me, it's actually possible to not think about your identity in Christ and just serve and say, well, I'm going to serve and I'm going to do stuff for everybody. We can come pride, become prideful of our sacrifice. And we can start to say, look how much I've done. Look how much I've served. You know, God's got to love me because I give up all my time. These bozos don't do nothing. I do it all. And we can become that prideful person where we're thankful. We think God's got to be thankful to have me. And it can quickly become a works-based salvation. Where we kind of say, I'm kind of earning this. But when we focus on our identity... And we seek to sacrifice for God's glory. We keep our focus on Christ. The two weapons come together and they can defeat the enemy, the monster of pride. Where we know who we are in Jesus, so we serve. But we can remain humble because we know we don't deserve to be a part of his kingdom. I get to. It's not I got to. I get to be a part of the kingdom of God. And I get to give a little bit of my time here and a little bit of my energy here and a little bit of my money here so that people can go to heaven. Does that get us excited? 
Does that get us excited that I can give a little bit of my time and a little, I mean, ultimately he wants it all, but a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit there. It changes eternities for people when we're pointing people to Jesus, not ourselves. And pride has no room. It's not we've got to, we get to. I want to leave you with this story, this encounter that Jesus had with two different people in Luke chapter 7. Beginning in verse 36, it says, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house, and he reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that she, he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, bought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair on her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Can you picture anything more humble? I mean, she's standing there. She was a sinful woman. She's standing there just sobbing, probably shaking. You probably saw her hair. Maybe she'd already taken it down to be able to use it for what she was going to do. And you probably just saw her head just bouncing, shaking. You could probably hear sobs because as soon as she walked into the room, all conversation stopped. All conversation stopped because she was this sinful woman. And for shock, number one, why, what is she doing here amongst us good people? And then number two, a lot of people were quiet thinking, I hope they don't know that I know her. You know what I'm saying? And so the room got quiet. And so she's probably sitting there and her sobs, her tears are the only thing that can be heard. And it says that she got down, she broke that jar of perfume, that jar of ointment open and put it on him. And her tears wet his feet and she used her hair. It says she kissed his feet. I don't want to kiss any of y'all's feet. But especially not somebody who's probably walking barefoot or in sandals and doesn't have 110 degree water to take a shower in all the time. But she's down there and she's kissing his feet and she's using her hair as a towel to clean his feet. It's the picture of humility. And it says in verse 39, when the Pharisee who had invited him, that is Jesus, saw this, he said to himself, he said it in his head, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him for she is a sinner. And I love this. This is 100% Jesus. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. You know, probably for a quick second, his pride got the best of him. And he thought, here I am. I'm a fair. I'm a man about town. I know everybody. Everybody knows me. I've got this teacher that everybody is clamoring to hear and wants to get close to. He has come to my house. And now he's going to pronounce a blessing on me. And he's going to talk about, he's probably going to talk about how good I am versus how bad this prostitute is. It's a good, it is not beyond the scope of reason for a Pharisee to think that he would call out that sinful woman and put him up on a pedestal. And so he's like, all right, here we go. Everybody's quiet. It's all, everybody's going to hear this. Say it, teacher, go ahead. And Jesus answers the thought that he had in his head. Stop trying to hide your secrets from Jesus. Just stop. I try to do it myself, but we've got to stop. He knows them. Verse 41, he tells a story. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. 
Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, man, isn't that something? Simon is sitting there and he's probably already a little bit crestfallen. I don't know if he's gotten the full point of the story yet. He gave the right answer, but I don't know if he knows who's who in the story. And so who knows if he was standing up or he knows if he was still sitting at a table, but all eyes are on him and all eyes are on Jesus at the same time. They are, boom. I mean, there is a spotlight on those two people. Maybe for a split second, everybody's sort of forgotten about the sinful woman. And so it says he's talking to Simon and he's looking at Simon. I don't want to point at one person. Y'all going to feel bad. He's pointing at Simon and he looks. Do you think you could almost hear his head turn? (laughs) He looks at her. And he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and she wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But who, he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. When you know who Jesus is, and you know who you are in him, You're free to sacrifice and you're free to serve with reckless abandon. But until you know who you are and you think you deserve a spot at the table like the Pharisee, until you know who you are and you think you know who you are, you're never ever going to understand the great gift that's been given to you. And when you're like the Pharisee, like we may have all been at one time in our life, when you're like the Pharisee, you don't realize that you're the sinful woman. That your sins are just like hers. They may look different, they may feel different, but they're just like yours. And you don't deserve to be at the table. But she understood who Jesus was and she understood who she could be in him. Isn't that crazy? That a religious teacher had heard Jesus' teachings and did not understand that Jesus was the Messiah. But this woman, who was a sinful woman, she knew. She knew who he was. And so she came and she sacrificed and she poured it all out. She didn't care what people thought. She got down at his feet because she knew that his feet were the place to be. And then in a little short while, that his feet would be nailed to a cross and pay for her sin and your sin and my sin. Where we need to get to church is we need to be so happy to know Jesus because we know we don't deserve a seat, but he's given us one that we want everybody to know that he's got a seat for them at the table. So it's time to kill the pride monster. It's time to kill the pride monster so people can see Jesus and not see us so that you can be saved today, so that I can be saved today if I don't have a relationship with Jesus. 
you want to know the deadliest thing about the pride monster? Is that it keeps us from repentance. It keeps us from turning back to the God who wants to give us life and salvation and freedom so much that he sent Jesus to die for us. It keeps us from repentance. It keeps us from leaving sin behind and turning to Jesus. So it's time, it's time to kill the pride monster and run to Jesus. This morning we're going to sing a song. And this song has this message that we all need to sing with our entire heart, mind, soul, body, and strength. For Jesus to build our life. Because the way that you and I have been building it just isn't working. And we can keep trying to build it ourselves and tear it down and rebuild it again and tear it down and rebuild it again. But until we just say, look, I know I cannot do it and we give it all to Jesus, we're never going to have healing. We're never going to have life. So it's time to kill the pride monster and run to Jesus. Let's stand, let's sing together. Thank you for listening to Movement Christian Church's sermon podcast. Want to learn more about us? You can do that by visiting our website at movementchristianchurch.com or on our app available on iOS and Android devices under Movement MC.